0: Hello, and welcome to Straight from the CPA's Mouth. I'm Laura Lee, Director of External Relations at CPA Alberta, and I'll be your host for today's episode. My guest today is Alberta CPA, Robert Andrews, and we're going to be discussing overrated and underrated leadership qualities, barriers Indigenous individuals face in pursuing the accounting designation, and Robert's work with the Aboriginal Financial Officers Association of Alberta.
1: Did you hear that head office is implementing new diversity and inclusion?
0: Women less than 10% of C-suite positions at Canada's 100 companies need to be more socially
1: responsible. Big impossible. data represents a potential windfall of $30 billion for Canada to
0: do a comprehensive review
1: of its tax system. 70% of Albertans say the economy is too dependent on oil and gas. Filter out the noise. Hear it straight from the CPA's mouth.
0: So, Robert, thank you so much for being on our show. We're super excited to have you here. Do you want to say hello and say a few words about yourself?
1: Uh, sure. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, as you mentioned, my name is Robert Andrews. I'm a CPA. I also have my master's in, in business administration. been working with the uh, Aboriginal population for for over a decade. And uh, recently, or well, recently as in the last 10 years, I've been working for the Aboriginal Financial Officers Association of Alberta.
0: Okay. So, in a previous episode, Joe Gagliardi was our guest, and he left us with the following question to discuss and answer. What do you think are the most overrated and underrated leadership qualities? So, Robert, do you want to tackle overrated qualities or underrated qualities first?
1: Uh, let's start with uh, with overrated okay. um, and overused.
0: Okay, so what do you think are some overrated and overused leadership qualities?
1: Because I did have a chance to consider the questions, I, I thought about this quite a bit. And what I what I came up with was a pairing. So in my mind, one of the most overutilized, maybe not skills, maybe dispositions or traits, is is ego. And associated with ego, I think dogma is is strongly related to that. So what I mean by that is in, in leadership and management, we, we tend to focus a lot on ourselves. We tend to focus on what our needs are, what our organizational needs are, what we interpret our organization's needs to be. and And we tend to be um, rather decisive or committed or dogmatic about these things. And my, my view is that this is actually an impairment. Um, it, it 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 limits our ability to be creative. It limits our ability to learn. It limits our ability to synthesize new information that we might um, come across or that might impact our organization or our industry. And and I think we have to be particularly sensitized to these things. And management leadership is challenging. And you often, in many respects, feel like you're alone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and part of that is is you. Will tend to feel decisive, you will tend to feel committed to to actions or behaviors or beliefs and as I say, the problem with that is is sometimes it 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 impairs your ability to get the best results, the best outcome um, self improvement potentially so just and, and and linking that to ego is is the notion of dogma mm-hmm. or heuristics um, and and the idea there is that we have these mental frameworks that we really stick to and stick by. And so dogma, we have these rules of thumb that that, in many respects govern our behavior. And, and I, I see this as particularly problematic. Um, resumes, for example. There's there's a commonly held view that if you see an error on a resume, that that person is not a candidate that you should consider.
0: Hmm, okay.
1: And, and you look at that and it's just, it's, it's rather absurd. I, I mean, it sets a standard of, of perfection that one doesn't exist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, if, if we apply that simple dogmatic rule, um, we risk not getting the suitable candidate. So I have a, a brief story about that. Um, years ago, I was hiring for an auditor uh, position, and I, I had the candidate show up for 2 o'clock, and she didn't actually show up till about 210. And the, the standard rule is if you're late for an interview, they're not suitable hires. And she was so distressed and she explained to me and, you know, I listened to her and we went ahead with the interview and she did very, very well. And the explanation she gave was was perplexing to me. She explained the address was, uh, was kind of funny. <laughs> she ended up in a residential section of the city, okay. not in the business district. So I was curious enough, I looked at it, and sure enough, there was an address that was so remarkably similar in a residential section that you know I kind of accepted her explanation, mm-hmm. but notwithstanding that, she was a very, very good candidate, so she was scheduled back for the second interview. her interview was one o'clock. she didn't show up till one fifteen okay and so it's so you're looking at this this dogmatic rule of you know you're late for an interview, they're not suitable hires well she I, I allowed her to do her second interview. She did very, very well. She did have another explanation why she was late, and I ended up hiring her yeah and and she was one of the best hires i I ever made. It was an excellent decision and and so, this idea of that dogma or these these rules of thumb get in the way of of clear thinking or better thinking.
0: It's interesting that you say that. I have a very similar story, and I probably shouldn't tell us she's a member of my team, and she'd be terribly embarrassed if I told the story, but she also was late to her job interview as well, and she was very apologetic, and she was the best candidate for the job, so we hired her, and now I can't imagine someone else being on my team.
1: Well, and that's exactly it. I mean, the, the rule, and, and if you look at, you know, these 10 tips about not what to do, making mistakes on resumes is one, and mm-hmm. Number two is don't be late for interviews. And and, and if you stick with these rules dogmatically, um, you lose out on those possibilities. And yeah. the the other parts of that is, is that was just an example, but we have these about, you know, industries, clients, all of these kinds of things where we have these rules of thumb in place. And yes, there's a point to them because they allow us to make decisions a little bit quicker. and But they also impair, uh, as I said, our thinking. And I, I think they also mask some of our own cognitive biases,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and they hide from us um, better opportunities.
0: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, you talked about decisiveness and committed being an overrated quality. What would you consider the opposite of decisiveness and committed?
1: Well, in that question, so if, if, if I looked at ego and dogma as, as, as one pairing of an overused quality, I think the inverse is, is the underutilized. Okay. And so what I would suggest is, is humility and authenticity.
0: Well, how do you think these overrated qualities are developed? Are they passed on through mentorship? Are they learned behavior? How does someone develop an over ego and and kind of a strict adherence to dogma?
1: That's a good question. I think I think in, in leadership and management, ego becomes a function of our success. Okay, it's a response that our hires have, our subordinates, because there is a deference. Um, you are the scene as the manager, the director, the VP. Mm-hmm. And so there is a deference. Um, so I think it tends to to reinforce itself. I think when we look at successes, we, we tend to view successes as a function of our abilities. And sometimes the truth of the matter is it's good timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good fortune. It's having good people that did a lot of work that you're not aware of. Yeah. And so I think this, this notion of ego tends to be very, very self-reinforcing in, in, in leadership and in management in particular. And dogma comes from that um, because you, you do something that works and then it becomes a rule, it becomes a standard. Mm. And you don't deviate from that kind of thinking.
0: Are there ever any instances that you can think of where ego and dogma are actually are good things? They're you know, ways that you can actually move things forward?
1: Yeah, and 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 this goes back to the idea of of humility and authenticity and and and, and not being dogmatic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, not being dogmatic says sometimes dogma is helpful, and so if we're in a new scenario and 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 we don't have a lot to rely on, sometimes our rules of thumb, our our dogmatic principles can actually help us. Again, in in leadership roles, you often feel alone. And so you have to have, to some degree, the courage of your convictions to move you forward in challenging environments. So I think there are cases when when it, it's useful, but to not be dogmatic about dogmas would be my my summary of that point.
0: Okay. So let's move on to underrated leadership qualities. What are some underrated leadership qualities?
1: If, if ego is overused, I think humility is underused. Okay. And associated with humility, I think, is authenticity. So... Humility is, is this idea that even though I'm the leader, I'm not necessarily right. I'm not necessarily sufficiently knowledgeable. Um, I, I should be open to new learning. I have to step back from my role and listen to other people. And And the impediment to that is ego. The, the way to get past that is humility. And I had an interesting uh, occurrence in one of my classes so, I teach a lot of management to First Nation people. And I worked with this group for roughly a year. And they were all senior uh, practitioners in their fields. And at the end of the session, one of the uh, elders in the group looked thoughtfully at me. And, and this was our concluding day. And she looked at me and she said, Robert, you think you were here to teach us. Maybe. We were here to teach you. Mm. and that that lesson was it was very impactful because it, it it spoke to this idea that we can well not that we can, that we all should be learning, but that our learning comes from all different places, mm-hmm. all different people and, and all different experiences, all different things and uh, humility, I think uh, as a concept is relatively well understood. In the First Nation context, it could be even further, and that could be we learn lessons from, from animals, from plants, mm-hmm. from from places. Um, so I think the idea of being open to those experiences, being humble about what we know, being mindful of our own limitations, helps to advance our our managerial skill and
0: mm-hmm.
1: our leadership abilities.
0: Do you think that some of the qualities that people value in leaders that as organizations change as you know, different people become leaders. The the types of traits change as well. You know, you talked about humility, and I know that in the past, many leaders weren't taught to say "I don't know," which is anti humility in a lot of ways, right?
1: Very much so, and and I think you're right. Like associated with humility is this notion of authenticity, mm-hmm. and this idea of authenticity is 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 being uh, true to oneself, true to one's goals, true to one's aspirations, um, and and being to some degree, transparent about those things I think as the world has changed our our values have changed and and I think because of the rate of that we get information, receive information, analyze information, critique information um, we 're also as as managers part of that scope of being critiqued and and I think our absence of authenticity is very clear.
0: Mm-hmm. In your opinion, how can someone cultivate their own leadership style so that they are a humble, authentic leader?
1: Well, it goes back to the overuse quality. I mean, its uh, forgive me if it's repetitive, but uh, ego gets in the way of so much. Yeah. And my statement, I'm right, impairs all my learning.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, rather than I'm right, maybe if we had this, I think I might know a little bit about this thing, but I'm certainly open to, to learning more. Is is a very helpful kind of approach to being humble in the work, to learning more, to learning better.
0: So, what advice would you have for someone who is figuring out their own leadership style? How can someone determine what type of leader that they want to become?
1: They have to reflect really closely, deeply on what they want, what they aspire to. There's roles in in, in leadership in all capacities, in in industry, in public service, in. Uh, not-for-profits, NGOs. So I think really understanding where their interests are, where their desires are, where their goals are, and then really aligning with those kinds of places. Mm -hmm. um, I think that would be probably the the most fruitful start. Okay.
0: Do you think CPAs make good leaders?
1: Yeah, and and not necessarily for the reasons you might think. I mean, technically they're very skilled. And um, going back to the idea of dogma, I think most people from the outside would think Accountants are, are very dogmatic very very procedural, but when you look at um, um, this professional expertise that has to be applied, uh, there's so much gray there's so much understanding, there's so much learning that takes place relative to a client or an engagement mm-hmm. and so I think the contrary is actually true that they because of the job, they cannot be dogmatic, so if they have to look at quality of earnings, for example, they have to consider that client those earnings in that particular context. So I think that tends to move away from from simple rules. Hmm. So I think the the CPA designation actually does create good leaders because of that.
0: Do you consider yourself a leader?
1: I suppose so. (laughs) I I, I think the the position executive director means I'm a leader. I think the question is, am I a good leader? And I, I would say I can be better.
0: Yeah. How would someone determine if they're a good leader?
1: Well, I I actually have an answer for that.
0: Oh, there you go. Okay.
1: (laughs) Um, And and this is um, something I came up with, and I call it the spouse test. Okay. And how the spouse test works, and I actually ask my my, uh, learners to consider this, is what would that person say to their spouse about you? Or what would that person say to their spouse about their day? Oh. Or what would that person say to their spouse about their job? Yeah. And so applying that test, the way I would say that is ask my staff what they say to their spouse about me.
0: Okay. And are they honest?
1: <laughs> well, one would hope they're honest to their spouse.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. Um, so what about leadership in Indigenous communities? Are the same leadership qualities that are valued in, say, a business setting be the same leadership qualities that are valued in Indigenous communities? No. No?
1: No. And and the the, the challenge there is that in the indigenous community, um, there's no separation between the, the person and the professional. Oh, okay. So you, so you have, and, and I'm talking not indigenous broadly, but First Nations in particular. So you have people that are, that are moved into these communities through the, the colonial experience. And they work with people that they live with. They hire people. That they see at personal functions and are related to them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: As, as I'm fairly advanced in my career, I, I've had the misfortune of having to fire people.
2: Yeah,
1: and I've never seen those people again in my life. In a First Nation community, if you fire someone, you might see them that same evening.
2: Yeah,
1: and you might see him over and over and over again, over the history of their lives. So so there's many qualities in the First Nation that are that are unique to First Nations and these business qualities are actually very much infused with their culture.
2: Yeah.
1: And there are significant cultural differences. I mean the 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 mistake that people make is because we look similarly, we dress similarly, we watch similar television that we're the same and that's just simply not a, a valid assumption. Mm-hmm. Culturally there's many differences. There's you know, much higher weighting to the collective, to the extended family, or in, in mainstream it's called the extended family In the First Nation community. It's just simply their family, their community. Hmm. So there's there's many subtle differences and, and some not so subtle. Okay. Um,
0: so what are some of the qualities that would be valued in in a First Nations organization when hiring them? Community. Okay.
1: Um, this, this notion of, of family is not, you know, your parents and your children. It's it's much more expansive, much, much, much more expansive. And understanding that is important. Um, uh, humility, as is, is, is I had said it was important, is a, is a very, very important characteristic of, of leadership in the First Nations. It's an important cultural belief. Um, so this notion of humility is, is not only, I think, important generally. And, you know, my work with the First Nations probably informed my opinions on, on the earlier question, but it's, it's vitally important in the First Nation communities. Um, Interestingly, humor is a, is a very important quality in First Nations. And, you know, we've worked with a lot of people and, and we teach accounting. So we worked with, you know, CPAs that have taught our students accounting. And one of the things they say, it's it's one of the best experiences of their careers. And part of that is is the, the warmth of these community members and... Just how how humor is is just infused in their lives. It's mm-hmm. you know wonderful experience.
0: Okay, I do want to talk about community later on. So um, I'm just going to shift gears a little bit, and we'll talk mm-hmm. about community very shortly. So you mentioned that you're a member of the Blood Tribe, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that Indigenous communities there's no separation between the personal and the professional. So how do you think your cultural identity has informed your own leadership style?
1: Well, I mean these are these are. Interesting questions, challenging questions. One, there's, there's two parts. So the connection between the personal and the professional is, is very real in the First Nation communities. But the mainstream orientation or the Western education forces a separation of that. Yeah. And that's really, really, really challenging in the First Nation communities. Mm. Um, and, and I think, it, frankly, it's, it's dysfunctional. Yeah. And it creates tensions that, that shouldn't exist because people don't understand the dynamics that exist in these communities. Um, so how, that's the first part, how it's informed my leadership is, is profoundly. Um, in working with the communities, I see expressions of different ways of doing things that are very good. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm currently a, a student at Haskane doing a doctoral program and one of the things I emphasize is that, well, in, in my entrance uh, essay, is all of the learnings that we can get from these First Nations. And when I reflect on, on why that is, or I explain to people why that should be, these are communities that have existed from time immemorial. And so they've learned so many things at work, so many things that are effective. And we look at businesses, and, and the shelf life of a business is under 50 years.
2: Yeah,
1: um, Management theory really only came about in in 40s, 50s, and 60s. So our management theory is really only in form with, with 80 years of, of scholarly study, where these indigenous communities did study this, and they did practice these things from time immemorial. So there's tremendous amounts to learn about organizations, about um community relations, about interactions with each other mm-hmm. that, that simply don't exist in, in the management context. So I think the communities can play a vital role in informing management just how to do a better job. Yeah. And that's based on thousands and thousands of years' experience.
0: Mm-hmm. In so many businesses, you're taught there's a work self and then there's your own personal self. And you are you become your own person and you're your own individual person once you leave work, right? There's a professional... Way to behave, and for me, it's very interesting to hear that those two selves should be one and the same in a lot of ways.
1: They have to be, and 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 just that that notion of there's a dichotomy, mm-hmm. it's, it's nonsensical. So I was asked to speak to a, a group of Haskin students, and I was introducing them to traditional um, knowledge. And one of the things that are, that are taught, it's a widely held understanding or belief around the medicine wheel. And that describes our person as as our emotion, our physical self, our spiritual self, and our intellectual self. Oh. and the belief is we have to keep these things in balance, yeah. otherwise, as people, we become unbalanced and I emphasize to these students that you know the focus on the university is all around the intellectual, but you can't let the emotion go, you can't let the spirituality go, you can't let the physical aspect go, yeah, and we see all the 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 harmful impacts of these things and i I talked about this and i said you know these are these are teachings from time immemorial um, and one of the students said you know it's funny you say this because i'm just being taught this in one of my management classes on on mindfulness yeah and it's being advocated as this kind of new theory but it isn't yeah they're traditional indigenous practices
0: it's yeah. a beautiful way of looking at it
1: mm-hmm. yeah. i think so
0: so indigenous sovereigns are underrepresented in the fields of accounting finance business if you had to make a guess, and keeping in mind this is kind of anecdotal, how many Indigenous Albertans would you say are CPAs? Twelve. Okay. What factors prevent those numbers from being higher?
1: So the the Indigenous population has your First Nation status people, has Métis and non-status people. Um, so each of those characteristics differ. So a non-status person could have lived in the urban environment and have had the benefits of, of good public schools. So their impediments are going to be less. If you look at a, a First Nation community, there there's many challenges, and, and it starts with grade school, where the quality of education isn't the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We had a, our, our one of our governance conferences, and CPA actually was a guest there, and they heard one y- young lady speak about her family member who um, was very pleased to to be admitted into the university, and she left her her nation as um, an honor student, and so she was accepted in the university, only to be told three months in that her grade twelve education was functionally equivalent to a grade nine education. Really? So you're looking at the quality that 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 exists in many of these first nations,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then you compound that with, um, all of the issues associated with what's described as intergenerational trauma. And, and that's the residual effects of the residential schools. And, you know, I'm sitting across from you and, and probably by all accounts, I look relatively professional. Um, but I too am you know, suffering from the effects of intergenerational trauma. It's, it's, it's not a choice. It's not a, a preference. It's not an excuse. It's a reality. These cycles continue of, of the effects of the residential schools and they impact the learners in so many ways, so many ways. Um, even if someone is, is successful because of the challenges in the community, they're often the rocks, and other community members in distress go to them so they may have fivefold the challenges that someone else might have mm-hmm. just because they're they're relied on so extensively because they are those stable reliable rocks in their community mm. um there there's issues with the institution there's issues with not having a face in the institution so you go to a an institution where it doesn't look like your community it doesn't have people in there that look like your people? They don't talk the same way, they don't have the same values. The the jokes aren't the same jokes. the The understanding of the humor is different. So, all of these things make it particularly challenging for the indigenous learners. And you, you have to have great admiration for those that have uh, come through the programs and succeeded, because there are many, you know, doctors and medical doctors, Ph.D.s, scholars, lawyers. There's many, many, many that have, have managed us to, to overcome these challenges, and, you know, we we have to be even more respectful of their accomplishments because of some of the things they've had to address. So that's just some of the the challenges.
0: Yeah. So you would say that those barriers are even because you have to have a post-secondary um, education in order to get your designation. So those barriers are even in place before they even get to the point of pursuing an accounting designation.
1: Very much so. There. I mean, the barriers are are in place uh, as they work through grade school, mm-hmm. as they work through mathematics, um, which is, you know, challenging for, for most people most of the time. But if you look at these young learners in, in grade school and they're not getting the quality of education, they're not getting the resources, um, it becomes that much more difficult once they get out to try to get that post-secondary education mm-hmm. as, as the you know the the uh, prerequisites for their their designation so it's exceedingly challenging and and through our no limits campaign with cpa we are working to understand those barriers work with the post to reduce some of those barriers come up with different approaches that 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 draw on the strengths of the the community members and the population to to help overcome those challenges
0: yeah So you mentioned earlier um, intergenerational trauma. So for someone who is not familiar with that, how would you define that? What do you want them to know about intergenerational trauma?
1: First of all, the the First Nation communities before contact were extremely sophisticated communities. They had extremely sophisticated governance structures, policing, international trade routes, and highly developed commerce, Um, all of these things that are not well understood by people. So then, the the, the experience of, of colonization occurred, and even that has various elements or stages. Because the earlier stage actually was marked by cooperation, where the First Nations were used as allies of the British to, for example, repel the American uh, Americans in eighteen twelve. So there was a, a collaborative uh, process early, but as as the settlers moved westwardly, they had to accommodate these these. Um, Settlers, and part of that was taking the land, which meant a, a change in government policy, which ended up in in the residential schools and and the reserve systems. The intent of the residential schools was to in the words of of government policy to to kill the Indian mm. in, in these people and so the, it was a, a very structured approach to make these people ashamed of their culture, to make them ashamed of their proud traditions to eliminate all those things that made them these unique peoples and turn them into what the, the government at the time thought was were, were Canadian citizens. And in, in these residential schools, these students, if you want to call them that, experienced all kinds of trauma. And, and these are well documented in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's hearings. But there was sexual trauma, physical trauma, verbal abuse, psychological abuse, all these things scarred these these people. And I can speak with some authority on this because my mother and sisters were products of the residential schools.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they were also pulled away from their family. And so parenting skills were, were not learned. So these children of these people that came from the residential schools had, had all of these associated issues the, the their parents didn't know how to express affection yeah because they were never allowed to express affection in the residential schools and well we think some of these things are very natural many of these things are, are also learned and and all that learning was taken that's what families do that's what parents do so these things were pulled away then there's the, the physical trauma the psychological trauma uh the the Efforts to remove their self-efficacy. They, they, First Nation people couldn't vote. Um, I think it was in 1950 or 60. I don't remember the exact date, but they weren't allowed to vote because they weren't seen as capable as c- c- citizens yeah. that could make you know well-informed decisions. So these things imprint on people, and they're passed down generations. And even though the the current youth haven't been to residential schools they're still feeling the impacts and live the impacts of, of this history and there are impairments that are very very real um and and they're actually well documented well studied but you know they don't have to be to appreciate them if you work with the communities you just have to talk to some of these folks to appreciate some of the challenges they have and understand what the roots are
0: yeah Obviously, it's imprinted on you as well, mm-hmm. um, and some of the barriers that Indigenous people face in pursuing post-secondary. How did you meet those challenges? You have your CPA designation, you have your master's, you're pursuing your doctorate. Good luck. Okay. Chance. Yeah.
1: I mean, the the, the advanced education really was driven by a commitment to help the communities um i've said to other people you know they express an interest in 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 working with the indigenous populations and, and kind of ask how do you do that and i say well you learn about them because as soon as you understand some of this history as soon as you understand who these people are you start to care
2: yeah
1: and once you start to care, it it becomes very motivating. So, so I would suggest the closeness with the community, and and I I, I think this is true of most of the the folks that have gone through the post secondaries, because you actually see a lot of them in social work, law, where they actually want to bring back skills uh, for their community. So, so I think it's it's very empowering.
0: Um, so you mentioned earlier the No Limits program mm-hmm. produced through the CPA Education Foundation. Do you want to give a bit of an introduction to No Limits?
1: Yeah, so AFOA has been around for roughly 22 years, and, and the whole focus of AFOA is to increase managerial capacity in the First Nations, ultimately to improve the the quality of life in, in the First Nation communities. And CPA uh, Education Foundation in particular uh, got in contact with us and, and told us about this initiative they were exploring which was exactly what we were after which is to increase uh indigenous people in, in originally it was accounting but it broadly became management and the interesting uh, thing that occurred over time is it became much more broad to just post-secondary education so they approached us with this initiative and we've been working roughly for two years with cpa through various initiatives, research initiatives, work with uh, post-secondary institutions to try to increase understanding of these issues to help uh, facilitate ways to reduce some of these challenges, to open up doors that previously might not have existed to create opportunities where potentially there wasn't any. And, and the, the CPA Education Foundation uh, initiative was founded on the contributions of, of uh, CPA members who donated. So it was a broader interest in in the indigenous population in the CPA community, and we were we we're very pleased to be able to work with with CPA Education Foundation, and we think it's been extremely successful. We've had some very good initi- initiatives through it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, in addition to that, I believe there was six new scholarships that were mm-hmm. created as part of No Limits, and as well as the Indigenous Learners Gathering. What in the last couple of years since No Limits has been implemented? What kind of impact have you seen No Limits made?
1: Well, one of the the biggest impacts is currently through our connections with the post-secondaries. And there's so many pieces to it, and we have to focus on things where we can make a difference. And the post-secondaries have been very receptive to trying to understand some of the challenges. So our Indigenous Learners Gathering, we actually bring Indigenous students with Um, professors, instructors, senior administrators of the post-secondaries. And what's unique about it is for two days, they sit at a table, 50% students, 50% instructors and and administrators, and hear each other. And so in the past, we've given them a challenge to work on, whether it's a case study, um, whether it's an exercise, whether it's learning hand games, where they actually interact personally not as faculty to students, but one-on-one is to people, um, and and it's been hugely impactful, hugely impactful, and we've seen impacts and commitments increase and desires to expose more faculty to to this process, so that they have a much deeper understanding of the the challenges that these First Nation learners face. Mm-hmm. So that's probably in in my mind the the, the most significant uh, impact we've seen. Yeah.
0: So earlier you talked about the AFOA. What do you do there? You're executive director? What do you do there, Robert?
1: Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, and, and frankly, I do everything from, and, and I'm not exaggerating, research to writing and developing programs, um, which run the whole gamut. So we have a, an existing, we're offering the uh, uh, Bachelor of Commerce in partnership with Athabasca University, but I also helped develop a training program for Harvard University, Harvard Harvard Business School, um, is on one extreme. On the other extreme... um, I oversee our development of our learning center, and at the end of sessions, I vacuum floors. (laughs) And I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) So you're a
0: jack-of-all-trades then. I have to be. (laughs) There you go. What can you tell us about the people who use the services of AFOA Alberta? Are there any common factors, such as age or experience?
1: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question as well, and it often surprises a lot of people. So the bulk of our participants are, well, almost all of them are, are the public service of First Nations. And that is predominantly female.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah,
1: and so we have a very, very, very high proportion, 75 to 80% in in administration and management that are female. And it's interesting, because I'm actually doing a little bit of research on this, and I think there's a cultural basis for this. Mm -hmm. Um, But they tend to be female. They also tend to be um, on the more mature side. And so they often will have... Children, very often adult children, but they're also often caring for for senior parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so that tends to be our our group that we typically work with. It's not always, of course, the case, but that tends to be quite typical of our of our uh, of our membership and of yeah. our learners.
0: And what kind of initiates their desire to want to pursue accounting, finance, and management?
1: Well, I mean through. I've heard from many about this, so we've run a number of accounting courses, and these are uh, post-secondary level, so they're first year or even second-year uh, uh, undergrad courses in accounting. We also run programs uh, aimed at executive education that are from some of the leading business schools in Canada, and and the 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 typically what you have is is because they do want to help their communities. Mm-hmm. Finances are important in, in the First Nation communities, and. Um, effective use of those resources is critically important. I I describe it as a zero-sum game, so any money they use for consultants or accountants actually pulls money away from other sources. Yeah. So, the effective utilization, effective use of those resources is critically important in the First Nations. So, that's one of the things that motivates them. The other thing that you see is they want to be role models for their children, um, or their nieces, or their nephews, and you know, they want to demonstrate that, you know, you can do this in your community. We, we can move forward. So, uh, again, a very positive message in that.
0: Okay. So how did you come to be involved with the AFOA? Did you always know that you wanted to bring your skills back and work with an organization like AFOA?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that's uh, it's been from, you know, very early in my, my university career. I used to tutor on, on one of the nations. And so I'd spend my evenings um, helping students learn it was a very natural progression. Uh, I did public service for a while. And after I completed my MBA, I moved back to to assist with the communities. And um, it's been the most satisfying job of my professional career.
0: Yeah. So we've talked a lot about community. How do you define community and why is community important to you?
1: In the First Nation community, it, it doesn't stop at family. There, there's broader collection, of family called clans. And these clans are are part of, of your community. But even broader than that, your, your nation is comprised of all of these clans. So the, the scope further extends. And my view on this is even broader. And it's informed in part by the First Nation spirituality and the idea of the creator that we're all if you will, children, the creator. So my understanding of community goes past the indigenous community. Okay. And it, it really comprises everyone. And there's many people, you'll hear elders sometimes speak of that kind of concept, but community really is all of us. And, and it makes good sense, like with the environmental challenges we're having and, you know, some of these other things, this, this understanding of community in that very broad way um, would be very helpful, very informative.
0: Mm-hmm. So in interviews, I know you've talked about the importance of Indigenous learners taking their skills back and using their knowledge and their skills to improve social, culture, and economic factors in Indigenous communities. Obviously, this is something you've done with the AFOA. Why is this concept of bringing skills back to communities important?
1: A couple elements of that, but one is you can make an impact in in ways that you simply can't elsewhere. Okay. So, So bringing back these skills to the communities, it doesn't translate necessarily to bigger houses or faster cars, it translates to the quality of the human lives in, mm. these, in these nations. And that's impactful, that's powerful. And given a choice of, of where you can apply these skills, um, that seems like a really important place.
0: Yeah. What does it mean to you to be, you obviously talked about role modeling as well, sending examples for people. What does it mean to you to be a role model for indigenous individuals who want to pursue post-secondary and then later, later their designation?
1: I, I've never perceived myself as a role model. Okay. Um, but I think some people potentially perceive me as a role model. And what that reminds me of is that I have to conduct myself to very, very high ethical standards Um and and that's that that's grounded in the community it also is grounded in the profession um but it's a constant reminder and, and and what that means ethics is broadly about good and bad so you have to conduct yourself in a way that's good when you expand that to the broader notion of community you you have to behave in a way that's healthy for people mm-hmm. um An elder asked this question. He he asked, are you medicine for your people? And implicit in that question was, are you actually good for your community?
0: So what advice would you have for Indigenous students who wanted to go into accounting or finance?
1: Well, um, a whole gamut, uh, just for time, I won't discuss them all, but just a couple. Um try to find the source of their strength which is their culture and, and I firmly believe and have seen this and have experienced it we, we carry part of our history with us and even though there was efforts to, to take it away I, I firmly believe that we still carry it in with us so, so I would suggest these students look to that inherent culture for help um i think the medicine wheel is is a very profound teaching and to try to keep them balanced so you know don't just focus on the intellect focus on the spirit mm-hmm. remember the the physical body and and all of those elements you know be be mindful of all of those things to stay in balance and lastly take full advantage of the cultural resources that are available at your institution. Many of them have learning centers, many of them have elders on site. So take full advantage of those things.
0: Okay. So that uh, feels like a really good place to kind of wrap this up. Straight from the CPA's mouth features Alberta CPAs asking and answering questions about anything and everything. So Robert, what question would you like to pose for our next guest? What question would you like the next CPA on our podcast to answer?
1: Well, I would like them to answer what is the best advice you've ever received?
0: It's mm, a great question. So, Robert, do you have any last thoughts before we wrap up?
1: No, I, I want to thank you and, and thank CPA, CPA Education Foundation, for all their work and, and supporting No Limits, and very pleased to have been here.
0: So there you have it, listeners, straight from the CPA's mouth. So thank you, Robert, so much for being our guest today and for sharing your stories and experiences with me and our listeners. Thank you to all of you for listening and learning. Don't miss out on our next episode featuring CPA Sam Virasekera sharing the best advice she's ever received. Don't miss out on future wisdom and answers straight from the CPA's mouth. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Straight from the CPA's mouth is brought to you by the CPA Education Foundation. The CPA Education Foundation is the charitable arm of the Alberta CPA profession, providing up to $1.2 million each year in support of business and accounting education in the province. This podcast is just one of many resource materials available through the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center. This virtual hub features Alberta CPAs sharing their unique perspective and vast expertise on topics and issues such as leadership, finance, entrepreneurship, and more. Visit CPAalberta.ca Foundation for more information on the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center and to learn how Alberta CPAs inspire success.